This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you, Elizabeth. It, it's uh, uh, an honor to be here. I enjoyed uh, also yesterday's interaction with, with your students. I always end up learning more from those, those sessions than they do. Uh, that's been my experience uh, to date. Uh, it speaks well for the group. Um, I'd shared with you a piece I did for the Cairo Review, and um, rather than bore you by repeating what I'd said in that, I thought I'd, I'd talk about what I would refer to as the perils of Pakistan uh, for those of people of a certain age or those that are film buffs. There's a reference to the perils of Pauline, uh, which was a series of uh, adventures of this lady who used to find herself always uh, at death's door and then things would happen. So Pakistan <laughs> likes to live dangerously. Uh, and Pakistan uh, manages to go up and then go down. And that has also characterized the relationship between Pakistan and the United States. I've used the term roller coaster relationship for uh, the US-Pakistan history. Uh, and uh, it uh, has never failed to disappoint. So every time when people are uh, celebrating uh, the rebirth of the relationship and the arrival of new leadership in Washington or in Islamabad or Rawalpindi, to be more accurate, where the power resides at army headquarters, uh, I always am the contrarian voice saying, wait, you know, this will go bad. <laughs> and, and, it, and it does. Um, so... Um, and the reason for that is that Pakistan, uh, in its uh, relatively short life, has faced many internal and external challenges, but it hasn't yet uh, decided what kind of a country it wants to be. And it reminds me of uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes from Alice in Wonderland, that when you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Uh, and I think that seems to be the mantra, that, you know, um, you kind of strike out and, and proclaim victory. And uh, in many ways, uh, having been in the U.S. Uh, since 72 and having been in Washington since 75 and having seen how the sausage is made in Washington, uh, I think this applies equally to, to Washington and to the U.S. policymaking. Uh, it, it's a question of just proclaiming the right path, heading to it, and uh, the, the heck with the results. And then if things go bad, you know, the other party takes over and they, they find the true path and then they, they do their own thing. And so you kind of switch, toggle between one uh, party and the other. Um, in Pakistan today, I would characterize the situation as one of a divided polity. It is a polity uh, where there's a very sharp division between the civil and the military and uh, among the different political parties. Um, you have across the spectrum uh, in the formal political structure, the Islamic parties uh, with the Islamist parties, which I, I use to differentiate the more activist groups that don't quite know whether they belong outside the system and should have relationship with the militants or belong inside the system and want to, to build it from within. Uh, and then you have 
essentially the emergence of two dynastic parties, the Pakistan People's Party, which was once the, the, uh, owned by the, the family of uh, its founder, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Um, the mantle fell on his daughter, Benazir Bhutto, and then uh, when she was assassinated, it was acquired through a, what many term a spurious will that he produced by her husband, uh, who used his children, and particularly the son, Bilawal Bhutto, as the co-chair of the New People's Party uh, and became uh, president on the, the basis of uh, a vote that uh, propelled his party back to power. So, um, and the other party is uh, spawned by the dictatorship of General Ziaul Haq. Uh, this was uh, known as the King's Party in those days. It was set up uh, as a Muslim league, um, and the, uh, the family of uh, current prime minister and former prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, essentially owns that party. Uh, and there's, there's another party which was known as the, the King's Party uh, during President Musharraf's day, also a Muslim League, which belongs to another family that broke off from the main Muslim League. So uh, you get the picture. They're basically uh, interested groups uh, that uh, have formed coalitions uh, with each other and worked out uh, a means of uh, uh, living together, uh, sharing power, uh, and, and these days uh, declaring a ceasefire so that they can uh, survive a five-year term. And so one party gets to recover all its investments from access to state resources, and then the other gets a chance uh, to eat at the trough. What they don't know is that the trough is becoming smaller and smaller. The pie is shrinking. Uh, and then there are other parties on the scene where, which are regional or language-based, and among them the... Uh, Mutahidda Qomi movement, which was formerly known as the Mahajar Qomi movement of people that came from India, Urdu-speaking people, primarily based in Karachi, but now is trying to set up operations in other cities in the country. It, on paper, a good development because it is the first professional political party based on service and community uh, support. However, uh, it is run by an unelected uh, leader who uh, runs it along the, the Don Corleone model out of London uh, and manages it from London by telephone calls. Uh, and if you don't agree with him, you lose your knees or your head, uh, whichever you prefer. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this has now been under attack uh, uh, by the military, uh, uh, which has had a a rough relationship with this party in Karachi uh, over the years, and uh, we don't know where that's going to end up. So this is kind of the, the scene of the, the parties. There's tremendous distrust also between the political government, the civilian government, and the military. Uh, and this is based on uh, a distrust which is historical, but also based on lack of performance. Because when political parties come in, particularly if they've been out of action for five or six years, one would expect that they have taken that time to put together a plan of action, that they have a manifesto which they've announced to the public that they will then support with action plans and that they will bring in a team or teams of individuals that will 
at the provincial level, at the national level, translate their ideas and, and help uh, fulfill the promises they've made to the electorate. But none of that happens. It's almost as if the election is over, now we'll wait for the next one. And uh, you know, how do we make some more money? Uh, and corruption is the underlying principle of govern government um, and access to state resources, which are dwindling. Uh, is, is the main focus of attention. So this creates distrust because the military sees uh, democracy being talked about but not being practiced. Uh, and the military remains still the best organized, most disciplined force in the country. Uh, it is also, in my view, the best organized, most disciplined political party because the military has, over the years, uh, ruled the country for at least half directly or indirectly for half the life of the country. Um, and they feel that they are fully capable of running things outside the military domain, uh, because obviously the civilians cannot. And so every now and then, uh, the people of Pakistan, who are a very resilient and a very trusting lot, turn to the military and whoever is the head of the army, and, and they say, please save us. Um, so for those of you that have been working here on Egypt or Nigeria or other places, you will see uh, echoes of, of this uh, in your own experiences. Uh, there is a similarity. Uh, there is a similarity. The training is the same. The background is the same. And um, uh, I think uh, military rulers and autocrats learn from each other much more than governments learn from each other. Uh, but they learn the wrong lessons. Uh, I think that's, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, however, um, in the last few years, something has changed. And that is that unlike in previous periods, when the military in Pakistan had a favorite political party waiting in the wings um, that it could then bring into power uh, as a front for it, or bring into power as an adjunct to a military rule like uh, President Musharraf's, uh, this time the military doesn't have a political party waiting. There was some discussion of the role of a new party that uh, is not new. It's, it's been around for 17 years, but that's emerged as a force uh, in the last uh, couple of years. And that's the party of the former cricket captain, Imran Khan, the Pakistan Tariqe Saf, the Movement for Justice. Um, and uh, it was thought that perhaps this was a surrogate for the military. There were rumors that the former head of the Inter-Services Intelligence, who was now based in Abu Dhabi, had come in to advise uh, Imran Khan on uh, launching a civil disobedience movement against the government of Prime Minister Sharif. Um, that was never fully proved, but you know, uh, in Pakistan, rumors have a way of coming true. Uh, or if they don't, there seems to be enough uh, a fire behind that smoke uh, to connect the two. And so people uh, took that as gospel. Uh, but that didn't happen. And so clearly, today, the military uh, is in a kind of a checkmate situation, where the civilians know that they need the military and its support, that they can't do without it. And they need it particularly because uh, the security situation in the country has deteriorated rapidly um, as an adjunct to the war in Afghanistan and the movement of Pakistani troops to the border region 
which is known as FATA, the Federally Administered Tribal Area. Uh, and that spawned an internal uh, Taliban movement in Pakistan, which has declared war on the state of Pakistan and on the Pakistan army. Uh, so the civilian government has, uh, ever since uh, President Zardari's period, given essentially pro-council powers to the military. And it also covered their uh, actions, uh, extra-legal actions in some cases, with a... Uh, 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 retroactive uh, grant of uh, immunity and indemnifying them against any uh, legal action uh, so that they can't be held responsible for summary executions or courts martial or uh, disappearances. Uh, the Supreme Court has tried to step in, but uh, I think with this law that was passed and signed by President Zardari, um, they were covered. Uh, before that, uh, they had no legal cover. Uh, this was done retroactively. Uh, with the current uh, big campaign that the military has launched into FATA, which began with operations in North Waziristan, uh, uh, it was a perfect example of how the military and the civilians are on different pages. They keep saying in public that they are on the same page, but they're not. So there was agreement between them that the military was... Uh, ready to launch an operation. Uh, this would, among other things, help relations with the United States because the U.S. had been saying uh, to the Pakistan military, we want you to deny space to the Haqqanis. They are a pain in the neck. They are so close to Kabul. They threaten us regularly, and they keep coming into Paktika and Paktia and coast. They have sanctuaries there, but they're using their base in North Waziristan, and you're not doing anything about them, which was true. And there was enough evidence that had been picked up through wireless intercepts, uh, which showed that uh, they were being given a pass and that, uh, in fact, sometimes information about potential strikes was being shared with them. So this had led to a, a serious problem between the U.S. and Pakistan, particularly under the previous army chief, General Kiani. Well, General Kiani kept promising Admiral Mike Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that he was just ready to launch an operation, and it would be another couple of months. And uh, for those of you that are not familiar with Urdu, the language in Pakistan, uh, we have one word uh, which uh, is used for the past and the future, and it's the word kal. And it's really a philosophy more than a word or a promise. Uh, so when somebody says kal, it could mean yesterday, and it could mean yesterday going back 3,000 years. <laughs> Or it could be tomorrow going 3,000 years. So when you go to your tailor and say, where's my shirt? He said, inshallah, you will get it. <laughs> it's a bit like Bukra, uh, you know, inshallah, <laughs> uh, in Arabic. So uh, it's a concept. And, and uh, I, I remember briefing Mike Mullen and trying to help him understand that he needed to understand this concept. Uh, but, you know, he had high hopes uh, that his interlocutor, whom he trusted deeply and to whom he wrote uh, essentially uh, almost a, a pain uh, in, in, in the hundred words that he was given by time in, uh, in, the, in that cover story on the hundred most influential people of the world, he wrote about Kiani that when he enters a room, the room lights up, and you know, things like that. Oh. The man with a plan and so on. 
none of that came to pass. So when Kiani uh, exited, exited and General Rahil Sharif stepped in, um, the, the local Taliban tested him and they mounted an attack on the military and uh, killed 26 people. The next day he launched an attack in North Waziristan. He didn't wait for any discussion with the government or anyone else. Um, he basically said, we will return the favor, and he told the, the civilian government, we are ready to move uh, with a full-scale operation. And I verified um, with uh, senior military officials, including the former air chief, that they had identified over 200 targets that they were updating on a weekly basis or monthly basis, and they knew exactly what to hit. Uh, and so... Um, the Prime Minister said, uh, yeah, that's a good idea, and they thought there was agreement on it. And then the Prime Minister went to Parliament and, without informing the Army Chief, made an announcement that they were ready to have peace talks with the Pakistani Taliban. And this would be done through surrogate representatives, uh, in which people from Imran Khan's party and others would be involved um, on the Taliban side, and uh, Nawaz Sharif would have people, including a former ISI major who had been responsible for uh, attempting to destabilize Benazir Bhutto's government in an operation called Midnight Jackal. Uh, he would be uh, on this team. So it's a very bizarre theater of the absurd peace talks. And army headquarters was completely dumbfounded by this move. And to put it in polite words, pissed. Because, you know, they thought they had an agreement. They were ready to move. And this was now not being uh, acceded to by the civilians. Uh, but they held their own. Uh, and then eventually, as the peace talks failed, as they would, uh, the military moved into action. Of course, this gave an opportunity to many of the bad guys to leave and to go into other parts of the country, uh, including into Nuristan in Afghanistan where they sought sanctuary. And now that has been the, the weakest uh, point of the Pakistan counterinsurgency campaign because reverse sanctuary now exists in Afghanistan, particularly with the coalition departing. Uh, and the worst nightmare that they have, and this was confirmed by Pre General Kiani, and it's confirmed by his successor, the worst nightmare they have is of a Taliban government in Kabul because then you have all of Afghanistan available as a reverse sanctuary for the Pakistani Taliban and all other militants. So uh, that operation was launched, uh, and the military has succeeded in uh, depopulating uh, North Waziristan as it did SWAT before it, although they're now attempting to send the people back. But the reconstruction is going to be very costly, and it's not clear where the funding is going to come from. I think this is a bill that Uncle Sam will probably be seeing but I don't see any uh, volition on the part of this administration or people on the Hill to take on uh, payments, uh, at least beyond 2016, when the coalition support funds dry up. Um, another weakness in the political system, uh, very quickly, is the uh, fact that, uh, as I mentioned, you have dynastic parties, and you don't have political systems for decision-making. You don't have bureaucracy is in place among the political parties. You don't have elections to party positions. Everyone is selected 
by the party hierarchy, which is selected by the family that runs each political party. So whether it's the Awami National Party in, in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, whether it is the Pakistan People's Party, whether it is the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, whether it's the Pakistan Muslim League Q group, which is belongs to the Chaudhary brothers, uh, formerly associated with Musharraf, all the decisions are made by selection. There are no elections. And uh, the government today is being run with a kitchen cabinet of four persons, which includes the Prime Minister's younger brother, who is the Chief Minister of Punjab, Shabazz Sharif, uh, his Defense Minister, uh, or, or, or Power Minister, um, uh, Khwaja Asif, uh, his uh, Finance Minister, and also his relative by marriage, um, Mr. Isaac Dar, uh, and the Interior Minister, Chaudhary Nisar Ali Khan. Uh, and none of them gets along with the others. So you have a kitchen cabinet that meets not as a cabinet but individually with the Prime Minister and this is the worst form of decision making for such a large uh, democratic setup in a country with 200 million people. Uh, so uh, decisions don't get made or if they are made they're overturned or uh, people are, uh, give misinformation to the Prime Minister and then he has to backtrack. Uh, so all kinds of troubles have ensued as a result. Um, the economic challenges are huge, and the economic and demographic challenges are linked, because as I said, 200 million people uh, with uh, a youth bulge, which is going to be with Pakistan for some years. Uh, it'll probably disappear around 2030. Uh, but uh, Pakistan needs to create roughly 3 million jobs, new jobs a year. And till now it's been losing jobs, um, largely because of an energy crisis due to mismanagement, poor distribution and corruption, uh, and uh, because of security issues when invest foreign direct investment has been plummeting. Uh, the tax to GDP ratio is one of the lowest in the world. Um, as a result, um, they're in constant budget deficit. Um, and they, at the moment, have about 2 million people on the income tax rolls out of a population of 200 million. Uh, so they can't afford to pay their bills. And they rely on two things, um, foreign assistance to some extent, but not to a very large extent. And the US is really a drop in the bucket for Pakistan's needs, uh, despite the view in Washington that it's such a huge amount. Uh, and they rely on. Uh, two things. One is the informal economy, which is off the radar and which is small and medium scale enterprises. And the other are remittances from workers, which have been on the upswing. Um, something like 14 to 16 billion dollars a year come in through remittances. Whereas the largest quantum of U.S. assistance was the Kerry Luger Berman bill, which promised 7.5 billion over a five-year period, so 1.5 billion a year. And um, I tried explaining to people on the Hill at countless hearings, Senate, House, also at the White House, that uh, you don't get leverage with such a small amount. You know, when the Pakistanis look at the amounts that they're getting from their own people and they look at 1.5 billion a year coming from the U.S., uh, they will do what they want to do and then take their druthers uh, with the U.S. So that's 
been an issue of great contention. In Congress, the view is we've been very generous with Pakistan. Why doesn't Pakistan return the favor? Uh, but as I said, the challenges of the dem demography are going to be huge. Pakistan is now home to a number of megacities. Uh, Lahore has 7 million people. Karachi has, uh, according to one recent study by Shahid Yusuf that I just saw, um, maybe close to 25 million people. Uh, it's bigger than most countries in Europe. And um, there don't seem to be any plans on how to govern these cities because they're city-states. Um, and um, the challenges that they're posing are enormous. Moreover, Pakistan has not had an official census for a long time, not since 1998, for a very simple reason, that the political parties do not wish the census to be completed. Because the moment a census is completed, the electoral rolls have to be redefined, and the constituencies have to be recast. And what will happen is power will shift from the countryside to the cities because uh, based on some calculations by a number of people, including myself, including the former deputy chairman of the National Planning Commission, Madimul Haq, Pakistan currently has over 65% urban population. Because if you use the UN definition of 10,000 persons make a town, then Pakistan is filled with towns of multiples of 10,000 people. Um, and if that power shifts from the countryside, then many of the traditional dynastic parties will lose their seats. And you'll have complete unknowns coming into parliament. And who knows where that will take Pakistan. Now, the cities, and particularly the petty bourgeoisie, are also the most conservative religious elements in the country. I think Barbara Metcalf has done a lot of work on it. Others. On, on Lahore uh, have, have produced that result, uh, which means that there may be a fertile ground for recruitment by the religious parties if they can get themselves organized. So the Egypt example may be worth looking at. The Brotherhood, um, if that model is applied by these parties and if they have elections, then uh, as they do. Uh, this is an interesting footnote. The only party in Pakistan that actually has elections regularly at the community level and all the way to the top and actually turfed out its head of the party after one term recently was the Jamaat-e-Islami, which is related to the Brotherhood, to the Ikhwan. The founder of the Jamaat-e-Islami influenced the Ikhwan al-Muslimin. So uh, there's a clash. There's a clash between the city and, and the countryside. And uh, the imbalance between the provinces are another big issue. Punjab is huge and dominates the political, administrative, and economic structure. 62% of the army is from the Punjab. 14.6% of the army is from Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. They've widened their recruitment now to Baluchistan and Sindh. Uh, but many of the people that are being recruited are uh, immigrants from other provinces uh, to Baluchistan and Sindh. So they're not native. Uh, to the province, and that's creating its own dynamic. Um, this is kind of the internal uh, situation. Um, let me just spend a few minutes on the regional, and then we'll open it up to, to questions. Um, Afghanistan, uh, as I said, I've already mentioned, uh, continues to be very closely tied at the hip to Pakistan. What happens in Afghanistan affects Pakistan and vice versa. 
the government of President Karzai had no patience and no trust in Pakistan uh, for good reason, because Pakistan was allowing the Afghan Taliban uh, to operate from sanctuaries inside its territory. Um, the government of President Ghani has, has decided to change things and, and set up a relationship for a while, and I don't know how long that will last. Um, he, before he came to power, he had an idea. Um, since I worked closely with him, he's a personal friend, we've talked about these things, so I was familiar with his strategy. Uh, he was going to give Pakistan room to prove its bona fides as a good neighbor. And uh, he would recognize Pakistan's deep concerns about the penetration of Afghan economy and uh, political system and influence in the security sector of India. And so that relationship was put on hold uh, for some time. And he has been visiting with his Pakistani counterparts and has, in fact, in a breach of protocol, went straight to army headquarters on his last visit to Rawalpindi instead of going to see the prime minister and then later went to see the Prime Minister. So it's an interesting uh, departure from protocol. Uh, but uh, it may pay off because there are some movements to tie the Afghan military's training to the Pakistan military training. And so six cadets from Afghanistan are at the military academy in Kakul now. And there may be other things that they're doing on a quid pro quo basis where the Afghans are helping get rid of the Pakistani Taliban and the Pakistanis are promising to bring the Afghan Taliban to the table and to neutralize the Haqqanis by suggesting that they seize their operations from Pakistan or move back into Afghanistan to their sanctuaries in, in uh, the two uh, PK area in Afghanistan. Um, the Chinese have put pressure on both Afghanistan and Pakistan to make up because they see a great threat from militancy which is uh, being trained and spawned in Fatah, uh, where Uyghur uh, exiles have, have uh, been caught in Xinjiang, who've admitted to being trained in Fatah. And two years ago, I was in Beijing for a conference, and that weekend, the head of the ISI, General Pasha, was summarily summoned by the Chinese to fly to Beijing overnight and, and given a dressing down and asked to sort out this mess because they had caught people who had been trained in Fatah and who, who said they were trained in such and such place and that the ISI was familiar with these places. So there is some tension and some pressure. Moreover, China does exercise economic influence over Pakistan. The promise of an economic corridor of road and rail links from Xinjiang down to the port of Gawadar to compete with Jabahar. Uh, in Iran, uh, should the Afghans choose that route to the sea, uh, is, is a reality. And the Chinese also want to set up infrastructure links with Afghanistan in order to retrieve their copper investments, uh, which is a long-term investment that they've made. Uh, so China is a powerful player. Uh, the Saudis continue to be a powerful influence because there's a surrogate war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which is being waged in Pakistan and that is now going to be waged in Afghanistan uh, once the coalition departs. And the Saudis don't want to lose, uh, lose their space. Um, Iran has always had a very tenuous relationship with Pakistan, but it shares a border with Pakistan. And Pakistan 
has also been accused by Iran of allowing Jundullah, which is uh, allegedly a U.S.-backed group, from attacking uh, sites inside Indian, uh, Iranian Balochistan. Um, India and Pakistan, I don't have to explain to you. It's a long-time rivalry, uh, and there is a chess game played on the map of South Asia where Pakistan ends up fomenting trouble in Kashmir, and then India foments trouble in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa or in Balochistan, um, or through their consulate in Zahedan in Balochistan. So uh, enough documentation of this. Uh, Christine Fair wrote a piece about this based on interviews she had with somebody at the Indian consulate in Zahedan. Uh, and there have been other instances of uh, uh, support. Uh, there was one report that uh, Indian cultural centers, particularly in the border region with Pakistan, um, have been closed by President Ghani uh, at the request of the Pakistanis because they were being used for some of these uh, activities. Uh, I don't know how accurate that is, but if it is, then it's certainly a confidence-building measure for relationships between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, the other big player in the region continues to be the United States. Uh, as the Soviets would put it, it's the near far, because it's always been in the region uh, through its alliances with Pakistan, now in alliance with Afghanistan, as well as a very strong relationship with India uh, and hopes of a stronger business relationship with India for the US, uh, which will lead to all kinds of balancing between how it works with Pakistan and with China in the future. Um, I don't see any great champion for Pakistan in the administration, nor in uh, uh, on the Hill. Um, till now, Pakistan was being seen largely through the Afghan prism, and this was by the creation of the so-called uh, special representative for AFPAC, uh, which many people started referring to as PAC-AF because Pakistan needed to have higher billing, but it never got it. Um, but within the last month, uh, the president decided to end this dichotomy. And so uh, the AFPAC uh, people in the National Security Council are now being merged into a larger group, which is going to be called South Asia. Uh, whether the State Department follows this also, where the SRAP office is located, uh, is something to be seen. Uh, John Kerry had reportedly promised the Pakistani foreign minister that he would do this, uh, but it's taken over a year and a half to get this done at the White House. So we're going to wait and see. And then the question is, how does the, the Pentagon work uh, this area? Uh, the Pentagon has been much more realistic on this, and they've been working quite effectively with the Pakistani military, particularly. Um, future scenarios. I think Pakistan, uh, within the next five years, will determine its fate. Uh, whether the centrifugal forces uh, that have been nurtured and unleashed by successive governments and military actions uh, will break up the country into uh, one, two, or more parts uh, is something that is to be seen. If it does occur, it won't be a rapid breakup, but it will be uh, a gradual decline of security, uh, inability of particularly the civilian police forces to provide security and the indiscriminate use of the military, which will reduce its effectiveness 
and ability to provide security at the borders as well as internally. Um, this is the worst case scenario. So conceivably Punjab or a confederation of Punjab and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa may survive and work out things with India and become a corridor of prosperity with Central Asia and Afghanistan um, or not. Uh, the other is, will the centripetal forces, the desire to hang together rather than hang separately, um, will force them into forming coalitions uh, that are cross-province and create new provincial structures to create a more balanced uh, model, maybe along the Nigerian model, you know, where you have equal-sized or roughly equal-sized provinces uh, I think Pakistan has 16 administrative divisions and so maybe that model might work where you have commissioners and then mini assemblies running things. Uh, that'll certainly remove many of the ethnic language and sectarian issues that um, have created a problem for this benighted country. Um, but it will need uh, very visionary and bold leadership there was some talk by the Nawaz Sharif government, which came in with a huge majority into parliament, that they would revisit the size of the provinces. Uh, but it, uh, that discussion has petered out. Um, the other possibility always remains either a direct uh, military coup or a soft coup, where the military forces the civilians into doing some of these things and supports them in that action. Uh, if I was a betting man, I would bet on the latter because the military is smart enough to have learned its lessons. It can't run the country and run the military at the same time. So um, we'll have to wait to see whether the centrifugal or the centripetal forces triumph. And so um, if you call me back in 10 years, I'd be happy to talk about it. Or five years and we'll see where things are. So let me stop here. I think I talked way too long, um, but I'd be happy to have a conversation on this. I'm sure you have uh, knowledge to add to this. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a Questions? Yes, Karen. Um, first of all, thank you very much for a very enlightening talk. I mean, now, I knew Pakistan was a complicated situation. Now, I know more than I did even I had imagined, so thank you. But uh, I was wondering where uh, harboring bin Laden, you know, years ago, played into your constellation of players there in Pakistan. What's it all about? Yeah, I think um, your question um, contains an assumption. When you use harboring, it means that there was volition. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, this is an area of my interest, and so I've been trying to ferret out all the information that I can. Uh, and indeed, last night, Elizabeth and I talked, and I shared with her some things that uh, I'm still working on. Um, uh, there are possibilities that there, there was uh, a super secret cell within the ISI, that people have uh, alluded to that, uh, that was so compartmentalized because all intelligence agencies are heavily compartmentalized and within them you can create a further compartment that you can have a watertight 
system where somebody keeps tabs on or keeps in touch with or whatever in order to make sure that you can neutralize the AQ when it's needed. But publicly, the AQ declared war on the state of Pakistan, and they tried to kill Musharraf when he was president. And knowing Musharraf as an individual, I think he would be very loath to provide any kind of um, safe haven for uh, the head of uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, so there are these conflicting uh, strands that one has to keep in mind. However, um, the fact that he was in the military cantonment near the military academy, near Abbottabad, um, is often cited. Uh, and if I was AQ, I, I would be seeking uh, refuge in a military cantonment also, because that's where you wouldn't look. Um, you know, if you want to hide under a candle, that's the darkest area uh, around. Um, so uh, remember also that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was picked up in Westridge, which is part of the Rawalpindi cantonment and less than half a mile from army headquarters. So um, that'd be the safest place to be. Uh, there was no ostensible guard. Uh, at least to the information gathered by the U.S. from material captured there indicates that uh, there was no one keeping, uh, keeping an eye on this place uh, from the Pakistani intelligence side. Otherwise, they would have identified potential sites and locations of the handlers. Uh, so this is obviously um, uh, a very insulated place. Uh, communication was by, by human being, not by electronic means, so that it couldn't be penetrated in any other way. Um, and the house was very nondescript, uh, unlike U.S. media portrayals of it as a million-dollar mansion. It's really a very slapdash construction uh, of brick and mortar and looked a lot like many other homes in the area. Uh, and people like their privacy, so they build huge walls and huge gates. You drive down Lahore, uh, in the, even the tonier parts of Lahore in Gulbarg, you find huge gates. Reminds me of my visits to Cali, Colombia, at the heyday of the, <laughs> the drug mafia there. They, the same architecture pervaded uh, that landscape. So I don't know um, what they would gain from it, uh, except it is alleged that you know this was a cash cow and so long as the AQ was active. But I think AQ is, uh, has stopped being active now as a major player because it was a franchise operation. And um, Zahiri uh, is no, no longer calling global shots. He's, you know, he's got people all over. Uh, I think Maulaki would probably have been the most suitable to take over that mantle, but the U.S. Uh, realized it and went and killed him in Yemen. So IS is now challenging uh, that brand name and that space, which is why Zahiri has announced the creation of AQIS, and interestingly has chosen to name an Indian Muslim as the head of AQIS in the Indian subcontinent. So uh, if, if, I, if anyone is to be worried, it should be the Indians, because they have a huge Muslim population, which is disaffected, dispossessed, and which can travel to 54 countries of the world without a visa. With a Pakistani passport, you have trouble leaving your own country, <laughs> you know, so, let alone entering any other country. So I think uh, these are things that have to be kept in mind. Uh,
Yes. And then you, you have You probably don't yeah. there. A common narrative in our media is that there are groups in Pakistan who are sympathetic to the Taliban, and if they took power in Pakistan, the Pakistani nuclear force would become a relative issue. If you were giving an address to the American press club, what would you tell them the narrative, the usual standard line about Pakistan ought to be? Should it be this or should it be something else? Well, I, you know, my problem is that I always present the a situation in Pakistan is a multivariate equation. And that's not something that journalists like. They, they want the sound bite. Um, I've actually stopped, uh, to a large extent, acceding to requests from the main networks because they'll take an hour and a half of your time and you get 20 seconds because that's the sound bite they want. Uh, one faces the same frustration in testifying on the Hill. You send a long paper, you deliver a shorter version, and then at the end, the chairman says to you, Mr. Nawaz, what do you think is the one thing we can do that could change everything? And my response is, there's no silver bullet. This is a multivariate equation. It's not linear. It's not simple equation. And you really have to chew gum and walk at the same time. And I think it's that inability to do that that hampers our ability to craft a policy. The other big change is, and this goes back to my definition of tomorrow, Kal, in the US, the time horizon is always the next congressional election. So we cannot see over the horizon beyond two years. Uh, the Chinese should be teaching us about political foresight uh, and thinking 5, 10, 30 years down the line. Um, we are so bound by these election deadlines the president can only think about four years. And all of Congress is basically worried about the next election. So uh, there, isn't, uh, there isn't a desire to say, uh, these are the long-term investments we need to make. Uh, and these are the investments we need to make with the people of these countries. Um, so what do we do? We choose to make relationships with individuals or parties or institutions like the military, because they deliver. And these are very short term. Uh, if you read the Washington Post and the New York Times editorial of today, I think you'll see a similar editorial at some point on Pakistan will be written. Uh, just change the names. Um, so uh, these relationships are complex, uh, and we're dealing with complex societies that have very ancient histories and very ancient memories. And our memories uh, now are basically going back to 9-11, if that. Because there's a new generation coming on stream who was not born at that time. And we don't know what they're going to be thinking. Uh, the Cold War is a distant memory. The Second World War is just forgotten. So I, I think, uh, as I said yesterday, the Cold War is still continuing, except now it's being fought through surrogates and different hotspots around the world. So it's a complex answer to a very important but a simple question. Yes? Yeah, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to lay out a lot of the complexity in the history of the U.S.-Pakistani relationship. And I, while you were talking, I was thinking about how the relationship between 
India and the United States is probably just as complicated. Um, and since Modi has been in power in the past couple of years, we've seen some interesting sort of shifts in that kind of triangulation. And I'm wondering, I'd uh, just like to hear a little bit from you about how you think the arrival of Modi on the scene as Prime Minister of India and the shifts in Indian pol politics and how that has also forced a change in the relationship between India and the U.S., how that might impact or how that is impacting Pakistan today. Great question. Um, it allows me to put on my optimist hat first. Um, I, I am by nature an optimist, and I, I had a friend, uh, unfortunately we lost him uh, last month, um, Arno de Bograv at CSIS. He would always tell me, he would accuse me of being an optimist and then tell me that a, a pessimist is an optimist with experience. <laughs> so when Modi was elected, I was elated. I was actually in, in Delhi uh, and in India um, during the elections. And then I was back there um, uh, recently, so I've been sort of following up on that. I was elated because for the first time, you now had two very popularly elected prime ministers in India and Pakistan. They didn't have coalitions to be beholden to. They could actually get things done. But Modi's focus was primarily domestic. And uh, he made some overtures at the international level to region, regional partners. Uh, but I think his focus will remain primarily domestic because if he is going to secure a place for himself, he, unlike Pakistan that has to create 3 million jobs, he has to create up to 15 million new jobs every year. And uh, the Indian uh, growth rate is perking up again. It's, it's better than China's this year. Uh, but uh, he's going to have to keep it on that upward trajectory. And that's going to be a huge challenge. Because in India, the centrifugal forces have already taken over. Power has been shifting from Delhi to the states. And uh, he's going to have to make those deals. And, he, and the first lesson he got in that was when he had the Prime Minister of Bangladesh come to Delhi, and they were ready to sign a deal on the water issue, the Faraka Baraj issue, uh, that bedeviled Pakistan-India relations when Bangladesh was East Pakistan. And, the sharing of the waters of the Ganges, Brahmaputra. The uh, deal couldn't go through because Mamta Banerjee, the chief minister of West Bengal, said, heck no. We want a deal only after the Bangladeshi refugees are sent back across the border to Bangladesh. And you have to guarantee that that will happen. And the central government didn't have the ability to do that. So there is going to be that challenge. I think the U.S. has operated under a kind of euphoria about this relationship with India. Uh, there certainly uh, was a reluctance on the part of the Obama administration to own up to the nuclear deal because India had opposition to it, and also because it was the Bush administration that had signed that deal. Um, so this is not something that Obama had done, but the problem occurred when uh, the U.S. decided that it would rebalance to or pivot to the Pacific and didn't talk to the Indians before it did that. Now, the one thing uh, 
my Indian friends are known for uh, is their sensitivity. They see themselves as a major regional and emerging global power. And they don't want to be taken for granted as a junior partner in this endeavor. And so um, they said, you know, we will be your friends, you know, we will work with you, but we are not going to be your partners and certainly not follow you. And so that has to be very carefully calibrated, that relationship. The other assumption on the part of the U.S. was that India now had this enormous reserve. It, was, it, it is now the world's largest importer of uh, arms, and that the U.S. would have this enormous market that would help subsidize the U.S. military, because if India purchased weapon systems, we could get economies of scale and provide them to our people at lower cost. And the first uh, element we threw into this equation was uh, our, our new uh, fighter jets. Uh, and we sent two of them. The Indians set a bunch of objective criteria for all the competing planes. And the first plane failed to meet one of them. And the second was sent up and failed to meet the same criterion. It was supposed to do something at 80,000 feet and couldn't do it, or 60,000 feet and couldn't do it. And so the U.S. plane was thrown out of the competition, and uh, the U.S. ambassador resigned. And it took a while to replace him. And Nancy Powell was sent in, and she was an old Pakistan hand, but it was good because she knew Pakistan and could work with India too. However, she resigned right after the elections. And it took the U.S. well over six months to find a replacement. So there are, there are these uh, gaps in this relationship which the U.S. is finding hard to fill. Um, I think the president now doesn't have that much time to devote to it. Uh, he's made a huge effort by going a second time to India. Uh, but he will need a lot of help from the Hill. And I don't think the Republicans are going to be that keen to help him. I have a feeling they're not. <laughs> so it'll be a tough challenge. It'll be a very tough challenge. Uh, and India still hasn't made up its mind on, on whether they will buy the Rafale, which was supposedly in the lead for that fighter role, because the Russians are back in the game. And the Russians provide uh, almost two-thirds of the Air Force equipment uh, for India. That's a very old relationship. And the U.S. is going to be deeply disappointed. But they have sold them um, transport aircraft uh, and then some other uh, systems. But, uh, you know, the fighter jet is the big uh, prize. Jim? Sorry. Jim? Go ahead. Uh, and then I'll come to you. Uh, well, first, thanks for the talk. I felt very uh, informative. Question. I guess I have a series of questions about the economic aspect that you brought up. From the article you sent us, I kind of jumped, one thing that stuck out was that you argued one of Sharif's best defenses against a military coup would be to build up the economic performance. And so I'm just trying to kind of figure out the picture that you're painting in the sense that you say that the economy is struggling, but it seems like it's a mega city. So I'm trying to figure out where the money is coming from to develop these cities. Is this for the remittances? Um, and 
and are the remittances were what, <clears throat> from whom are the remittances or the remittances coming from? Yes. Um, and a, a secondary question, or a, a question I'm just curious about is, does Pakistan have a position on the Asia investment uh, infrastructure bank that Chinese are right now? Uh, on the last one, I'm not sure what the official position is. Um, I think India will probably play a major role um, in that enterprise. Um, and so that will certainly color Pakistan's view of it. Uh, but with the Europeans coming in, I think Pakistan may want to, to ride along. Uh, on the economy, remittances are certainly a major factor because they provide uh, a direct transfer from workers to their place where they send the money, whether it's the villages or the cities. And uh, the traditional pattern has been um, when people send money to their uh, relatives and families in the villages, they first build a better home, then they add a refrigerator, electricity, a television, and so on. And then they build a home on the outskirts of the nearest town or city so that they can educate their kids and get them better health and, and so on. So this has kind of been the pattern. Uh, and they invest in the informal sector and in transport, small shops, and so on. So um, this is the other. Uh, so there's a direct transfer. Uh, the, the growth that has occurred in Pakistan is not because of government, but in spite of government. And this is the direct transfer that's responsible for urbanization and development that has occurred. The other is the informal sector and the small and medium scale enterprises that operate outside the tax net. Uh, those have not been captured by official data. And uh, therefore, you see much less poverty, relatively speaking, in Pakistan than you do in India uh, because of this. Um, and that's what's keeping the country afloat. When you go to Pakistan, you see evidence of uh, wealth, uh, not wild wealth, not like in the Gulf states. But you see people uh, well-dressed. You won't see a beggar who's not wearing shoes. You, you will see beggars, uh, but they're, they're clothed and they're wearing shoes and they're not in tatters. Um, so there, there are uh, signs of some resiliency in the economy. The key to it, the key to economic revival is going to be governance. And uh, that means Reviving the bureaucratic structure, um, having government that is responsive, and using technology uh, to do that. Uh, interestingly, during Musharraf's period, when he set up local government, uh, the weakest link in that endeavor was that he failed to give fiscal autonomy to local government. So they became his slaves and his way of bypassing the political system. Uh, I think if that can be done, uh, the political parties will find that they have a much stronger structure on which to base their activities. But it, by definition, means that it, they can no longer be dynastic and that you can't have a family running and selecting people all the time. So uh, that's really going to be the key. Good governance uh, and uh, the ability to respond uh, to people's needs which happened in Musharraf's time. So in Faisalabad, for instance, the, the local council had a website that posted every month all the requests that they had received for services from the local population. And it actually had notes on what was done. So Mr. X from such and such mahalla came and wanted uh, 
uh, a standpipe installed on his street so that the neighborhood could get water. And then it says, we're digging the thing, and then the next month it says, we're, we've now added a standpipe and water is being delivered. Or whatever the issue was, uh, they, were, they were resolved. Patrick, I'll come to you, but I think we have a question at the back. Sorry. Um, you didn't say anything about um, U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan, and so I'd um, be curious to hear you say a bit about um, the impact of U.S. drone strikes, and in particular, I'm curious about um, public opinion in Fatah and then in the rest of the country about the drone strikes, and then also about um, some of the effects of drone strikes, um, perhaps on domestic politics, on counterinsurgency efforts, and on U.S. Pakistan. Okay, uh, for those that want the long answer, there's a, I did a piece, uh, it's a little out of date, but I think it's still relevant on this topic uh, for the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Um, but the short answer is that there, there are two uh, uh, lines of thought in Pakistan and have been for quite some time on drones within the area of the drone strikes, which is Fatah. And it's been confined to Fatah. It hasn't come into Balochistan or into the settled areas of Pakistan. Um, and the U.S. is still denying that there are drone strikes that the U.S. is launching. I once received an email answer to a question I'd sent to the Pentagon. Uh, and it referred to the drones, our drone strikes. And then I got an email in a nanosecond after that saying, please delete that email. This is the corrected version that you should be reading. Um, so the U.S. denies that, that the U.S. is involved. <laughs> um, in Fatah, the people don't like the drone strikes. Um, but they, they also appreciate them because they get rid of the bad guys who've brought all this pestilence and warfare onto that region. So it's these rich guys who come in and rent a place and then move on to the next place after a month. Uh, and, you know, they bring this unwanted attention. Uh, and a lot of innocent people get killed um, when, when the strikes are not accurate or they go awry. Uh, in the rest of the country, the government was complicit because of its two-faced policy. Uh, and the previous government, and as well as the current government, continues this, where they bemoan drone strikes as infringing upon the sovereignty of Pakistan. Uh, but as WikiLeaks has shown, uh, the, uh, the previous army chief and uh, the prime minister and others were all saying, heck, fine, you know, go ahead, kill some people. Uh, we don't mind. Uh, in fact, we would ask you to help us with some more drones. Um, you know, we want more surveillance also. Give us, share us the information. They were quite prepared to own up to joint drone operations. Uh, except, of course, they wanted them to use uh, against the Pakistani Taliban, not against the Afghan Taliban. So there was a difference of opinion on that. Uh, so that's really where it stands. Uh, I think uh, when uh, we depart from Afghanistan, uh, our ability to mount these attacks will, will go down and to support the Afghan troops, which is what we are doing now. In Afghanistan, I think uh, a majority of the strikes are not being publicized, but are really directed in support of Afghan national security forces operations. And only a select few are operating in Fatah. 
there has been uh, sporadic collaboration uh, with the ISI, obviously, um, within bounds because there isn't total trust. Uh, but I'm also familiar with tremendous collaboration with the Germans and the French and the Brits who have independently mounted operations inside Fatah and trained locals of Fatah uh, to act as, uh, as spotters. And when I traveled to North Waziristan, I heard for the first time a word uh, that I used and others have now been using it also of something called the patri. A patri is a chip. Uh, so this was a basically a thin homing device that you would provide a local tribesman and ask him to identify the, the hujra, the house where these favored guests of the AQ uh, and all the Taliban were hiding. And all he had to do was walk past it and throw it over the wall. And it allowed the drone to home in on that and, uh, and, 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 and destroy that particular uh, location. Uh, so there is a reference to the, to the use of the Patri. Uh, and, and this is not necessarily active collaboration with Pakistani intelligence, but um, I know from my own sources uh, that the French certainly took people from North Waziristan to Paris, trained them, and then sent them back. And the Germans have been doing it because the Germans want to track down the training centers because they lost, quote-unquote, lost 200 Germans of German descent, not Turkish Germans or other uh, uh, immigrants. Uh, these are real Germans with German passports who disappeared off the face of the earth. And they, they believe that they're in Fatah. And they're getting training and they'll come back. So the drones will continue probably for the next year or two. And then after that, I don't know if they'll have the range to operate from the Gulf. Oh, yes, Patrick, yes. I was, was sort of surprising, and I think that was part of your intention, in saying that the only parties in Pakistan that really operate at a democratic level from top to bottom are the, are the Islamist parties. You know, that's, um, you know, we certainly don't associate Islamist, Islamism with democracy in most sort of Western media. But um, I remember years ago there was always, there was talk about, oh, we need to negotiate with the Taliban to leave Afghanistan. That seems to have stopped being mentioned so much as the actual withdrawal date approaches, but um, to what extent, in your opinion, is, because I know after Egypt overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood, it was derided as a terrorist organization and completely legitimate, etc. To what extent is it just a reality that, you know, the powers that be have to recognize a, an Islamist presence within politics? And do you think it's possible to have an Islamist presence within politics and have a democratic polity at the same time? Or do you think it's purely for the intent of just subverting it and overthrowing it? Uh, I may be wrong on this, um, but um, my view is that if you bring people into the system, into the political system, it's the best way of ensuring that they will participate in the open, that they won't go underground and do things that are detrimental to your system. Um, I was part of a project uh, about six years ago at the U.S. Institute of Peace, which was run by Frank Fukuyama and Larry Diamond. And that's available on the USIP website. It's called uh, Security and Reform in the Muslim World. It began as Security and Reform in the Middle East, and then it was expanded um, 
after a, a dinner talk I gave and Frank Fukuyama called me the next day and said, we've decided to change the title of the project to include Pakistan, so will you do a chapter on Pakistan? This was my thesis, that Pakistan had, um, for whatever reasons, smartly, I think, allowed religious-based political parties to operate. And as a result, they never gained a great deal of the votes. They got 1% or 2% of votes in any election, except when Musharraf made a deal with them to ensure that he could be army chief and president at the same time. That's when they came in with about 18% of the votes. Uh, but they went back to their 1% to 2% in the subsequent election. So um, my view was that um, I think Egypt had made a mistake in pushing the, the Ikhwan underground. Um, of course, the Ikhwan may have made a mistake when they came to power in trying to push through things uh, in a manner which created an immediate reaction from the military. But um, I think allowing religious-based political parties is one way of ensuring that you will hear their views and they will vote in parliament and that's how they will effect change. Uh, and it's true, they are the most politically active. In fact, Marina Ottaway, when she was running um, workshops on uh, democratic systems and preparing for elections, etc., and how to run party organizations in Egypt, uh, talked about this. She said, um, this is for Carnegie. She said the only people that would show up at those workshops were the uh, Brotherhood. All the mainstream political parties in Egypt thought this was below their dignity to uh, to organize and to have elections and to vote, etc. That you know they they would just have their coffee club meetings and and proceed on that basis. Um, so I think political organization at the community level um, is necessary for all parties, and and I I just mentioned that because uh, it's not that I'm saying they should be they're the model. But uh, it's a fact that they're the only party in Pakistan that actually has free elections. And they did throw out their leader after one term because they didn't like what he had done. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Shuja, for an enlightening talk. We look forward to seeing you in five years' time and see how your bet turned out. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.